Before we begin this week's episode, I just wanted to note the passing of Robbie Coltrane, our beloved ticket seller. He died last week at the age of 72. Oddly enough, the episode you're about to hear is going over his biggest scene in the movie. But it was recorded all the way back in April. It's actually one of the first episodes I made. But that's a testament to how good Robbie Coltrane was in this film, that my guest, David Hill, made it a point that this was the scene that we had to discuss. On Twitter, I'm always on Twitter, I asked Randy Ostrow, the Let It Ride producer who was kind enough to come on this show. It's episode seven if you haven't heard it, and you probably should. It's maybe my favorite one. Here's what Randy wrote regarding his experience with Robbie Coltrane. What a wonderful gentleman. Even that long ago, everyone knew they were in the presence of a special man. Everyone loved him. Jay Cronley considered him the best character in the movie. And there you go. I think that kind of says everything. Rest in peace, Robbie. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to the Jockey Club, a podcast looking at the movie Let It Ride, one scene at a time. My name is Dan Delgado, and we're at Historic Hylia Park, where one man is having the best day of his life. I'm having a good day. So come on in and hang out while we talk about this day and the greatest movie of all time, Let It Ride. Don't worry about that guy at the door. I've got you covered. You can even take my seat to the jockey club. Welcome back to the jockey club. My name is Dan Delgado. We are up to episode 22, which means that we are doing the 22nd scene of Let It Ride. And really, yes, it's the 22nd scene, according to me. This is the scene where Trotter takes a poll to find out which horse he should be betting on next and has a very special moment with the ticket seller. So, yes, it's actually two scenes. And if you're playing along at home, this is from minute 5313 to minute 5713. Four hot minutes. And joining me at my usual table is David Hill. I'm a big fan of David's podcast, Gamblers, which is from the Ringer Podcast Network. But what really made me think of David for this show was an essay that he had written about Let It Ride a few years ago. There's a link to it in the show description so you can check it out for yourself. All right, now let's head on up to the Jockey Club where we will discuss why you can enjoy Let It Ride guilt free. Yes, you can why other gambling movies are square, and the 22nd scene of Let It Ride. All right, so, now, David, you specifically asked for the scene we're going to talk about here, the 23rd, I have it listed as the 23rd scene, and you called it the scene. You were like, can I do the scene? And I honestly didn't know what you meant by the scene, like, which one <laughs> is the scene? And... It's this one here, the 23rd scene where, where Trotter is going to be betting on Fleet Dreams, the number three horse in the seventh race. So why is this the scene for you, Dave? Well, it's the scene for a number of reasons. But I think whenever I watch this scene, this particular scene in the movie, I definitely feel, you know, a little dusty in my eyes. I feel like it's the emotional crescendo of the movie. It's the... Um, it's the... Uh, uh, it's sort of the the high water mark, right? I mean, it's where I think Trotter has fully given in to 
his possession and he's being celebrated for it. And I think that moment, you know, of not only the applause, the celebration, but also when Robbie Coltrane's character says like, you know, you know, gives him his little speech. Yeah. You know, gassing him up. I mean, you know, that as a gambler, you know, that feels like, you know, a powerful moment. As <laughs> as a gambler. So you have that unique perspective. Is is this something that hmm how do I want to say this? Is this something that's remotely realistic? If No. I mean, okay. yes and no. <laughs> okay. Here's what I'll say. Yeah. I mean, this is what I think about this movie in general, right? I think right. What, what, to me, what makes this movie stand out in the sort of pantheon of uh, the very small <laughs> pantheon of films that have been made about this sport mm-hmm. is, that in, is that it's the only one that really focuses on the, you know, the punters, right? The, yes. The players. It doesn't, it, you know, every other film focuses on like the jockeys and the horses, right? Absolutely. This is the only one. And I think that this moment in this particular film is, yeah, it's a fantasy that people would all applaud <laughs> because somebody made a big bet. That's sort of a heightened, you know, they've heightened the joke there. But there's, it's rooted in something very real, which is this idea that game recognizes game, right? The, the gamblers yeah. at the track Right. are in awe of and are respecting the fact that he has done a completely stupid thing, that he has let it ride. And I think that that is very real, right? I mean, if you are a horse player and your friend it did something like, you know, if someone else at the track did something like that, you would say, I would never do that. That's completely stupid. But <laughs> respect to you for doing it. I hope you win. And I think that is kind of a code among gamblers and horse players for sure that you want to see somebody who takes a big risk like that win. Okay, so now, with that in mind, the other thing that's going on with this movie, and I think it's, it's a great point considering that all of these gamblers that are very patiently waiting while Trotter and the ticket seller share a cigarette, I absolutely love this. I love the ticket seller's little, little monologue about you know, his whole life is, is doing this and he plays the circuits. And it's like you get a little bit of insight into him for, for whatever reason. <laughs> but all of Trotter's actual friends seem to not be happy with his success. Like all of the people at the bar, at Marty's bar across the street, they're not really happy for him when, when he seems to win. And, and not until you get to the very end of the movie. But these other people who are seems like everybody is aware of his story of what's going on with him so you've got those gamblers who know him those people they're like Ugh, god he keeps winning and these other ones who don't know him but are like you say yeah go ahead go do that crazy thing i'm not doing it but i applaud you doing it so what do you think of that that difference there <laughs> right they're haters once he wins yes well, i think that part of it is that yeah you you respect the fact that somebody takes a big risk like that but you also expect that they're going to lose and then he wins and i think it's a different you know it kind of changes the calculus for them a little bit because then he's at the bar gloating about it and we have to also remember the first part of the scene right the way in this scene that trotter arrives at (laughs) at fleet dreams yes is that he goes around the track and asks everybody who they like and he just crosses off every horse right so in a way even this bet itself was like disrespectful to (laughs) all of his buddies and the other other gamblers of the track but you know i mean there's a sort of a there's an arc in this film for trotter that's independent of this one scene this one scene i think in a lot of ways can even stand on its own but you know trotter is not 
really a great person. You know what I mean? Like, oh, <laughs> he's kind of a jerk. So, like, the fact that he's having this great day and good things are having him is kind of, you know, problematic for the viewer because he hasn't done anything to really deserve it other than just sort of live a hard luck life. So, you know, you can see a little bit why his friends turn on him because he is a little bit of an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if somebody else is playing him, maybe he's far less likable. I, I think there's a, there's a way. In fact, let me rephrase that. There's a way to play him where he's a completely unlikable person, right? Sure, and I yeah. even think that Trotter in the book is a lot less likable in the than he is in the film. I oh, think that uh, <laughs> I think so too. I, yeah. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So, when did you first see Let It Ride? Can you tell me about that? What your first time that you saw it? What your experience was like? Did it strike a chord at that first time, or was it later on? Yeah, I mean, I I had to have been a kid, you know. So I don't think that I could have fully appreciated the film the way that I do now when I first saw it because I had to have seen it as a kid. Let's see, this movie came out in 89, so I was like 12 years old, you know, so I, I probably saw it somewhere around the early 90s and just sort of probably just knew it as like a movie that would come on HBO from time to time. I think I started to watch it, I started to watch it with more reverence when I was older and was more into, you know, the racetrack as kind of a part of my life. I think that's when I turned to this movie and saw it as more of a uh, touchstone, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> than I did as as I was growing up. But I I do feel like I've, this movie has always been something that's been sort of something that I've known existed. It's not like I discovered as an adult. I feel like as a kid, I, I definitely remember watching this movie and feeling a little bit intrigued by it. You know, and I also grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I grew up in this racetrack town that this movie's based on. So it also felt very real to me, even as a kid. I mean, you know what I mean? Like the that bar that they hang out in is definitely modeled on the Longshot Saloon or the, you know, or the Frontier, one of the bars across from Oaklawn. And, you know, and, and, and Jay Cronley talked about taking Ned and Nancy Dowd to Oaklawn to show them the track so that she could write the script. I mean, you know, it, it, it's based on a real place that I, where I grew up. So I definitely feel like I, the movie fired on some synapses for me because if, if it is based on anything real, it's something that I experienced as well. That is really funny because, all right, so I, I have a somewhat similar perspective, but just a completely different location, right? So when I saw this movie, it's a movie that you watch it, it takes place in Miami. It takes place at right, Ohio Hialeah Hialeah. Park. And I live in South Florida. So I look at this as like, oh, this is a local thing for me. This is <laughs> a track that's locally here. Even though for years I was complete, completely wrong about which track that it was took place at i always like to point that out for some reason i thought it was at gulfstream i don't know why uh-huh. and then eventually uh-huh. i realized like, no the flamingos in the beginning are the dead giveaway I, it is the giveaway it is but <laughs> i you know i don't know i don't have an excuse for it david i really don't okay <laughs> but that's funny because so when when you watch this movie and you have this perspective of being a guy from arkansas being from where this track was now in, in the book, that track doesn't seem like it's the greatest track in the world. But yeah. Hi- Hialeah is, in this movie, is gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> Oaklawn, when this book would have been written, you know, in the 1970s, right. Oaklawn was a big track. It had gone through a big renovation and it was, you know, it used to be an outdoor track just like most racetracks and they had sort of enclosed it into this the grandstands were enclosed into an indoor building in the 70s. And I think that uh, 
the track, like I said, it was very popular. Still had a bit, you know, still managed to get a big crowd there every race season, but wasn't necessarily like a fancy track the way that like a Saratoga or Belmont or Hialeah might have been. So, yeah, the seedy that sort of seediness that you get in this film, yeah, probably was more inspired by the Oaklawn of that time than right. by the Hialeah of that time. In your experiences at Oaklawn, did you see characters like you would see in Let It Ride? Yeah, without a doubt. Anybody that's hung out at a racetrack has... Exp- has <laughs> all of these characters in this film are archetypes, for it's, sure. It's so true. Yeah. I think that there's two things working here at this film, right? The yeah. fact that this screenplay was written by Nancy Dowd and Jay Crunley together is important because she is clearly someone who is not <laughs> somebody who had been around the racetrack a lot, didn't, that it, did not come from that kind of walk of life, but is somebody who is brilliant and has a very kind of cool sensibility and so i think that you know she took the this like this scene we're talking about right this this racetrack teller scene in the in the book is not nearly this good it is not nearly this emotion it's you know it's some of the same dialogue but it's played so much better in the film than it is in the book so i think that like clearly jay cronley as a horse player Mm -hmm. and a passionate horse racing fan injected some of that sort of verisimilitude into this film but I think that Nancy Dowd, her imprint here is that she was able to take that, that you know, verisimilitude and give it some emotion and give it some, give it some heft, you know. And I, I think that the two of them working together made this movie as good as it is. Now we're obviously sitting here singing his praises, saying it's good. Right here we are, like thirty years on or whatever. But at the time, people did not think this was a good movie. <laughs> <You> <laughs> no, know, it was no. a flop. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, of course. Oh my god, even yeah. Nancy took her name off of it. So like, you know. Yeah, I do wonder about that. Why it's Ernest Morton? What specifically that is? Because well, it's been know, Ernest Morton the entire time. You know, when it was released, right. she's, it's Ernest Morton. I I don't know if that's she has a history she of this. She yeah. has a history of this, right? I mean, she won an Oscar, mm-hmm. and then I think, I think she took a lot of jobs as paychecks, and yes. then when when she realized this is not going to be up to the level of uh, Oscar winner's you know reputation, would re- take her name off and use pen names. She did this with a number of movies. She wrote the screenplay for Coming Home and won the Academy Award for that. You know her connection to this film is that her brother Ned, the, of Slapshot fame, which mm-hmm. she also wrote, he produced this film, so he brought her on to work with Jay on the script. And the story that at least I've read is that Nancy and Ned kind of got into a lot of sibling squabbles over changes that he was making to her script and she said fuck it and pulled out and took her name off of the movie out of sort of anger but she did that with a lot of movies if you look at her IMDB page you'll see that there's a lot of pseudonyms or uncredited Mm -hmm. films that she worked on because I think she was somebody who had a real temper perhaps and was really kind of protective of her <laughs> her brand or whatever. Oh, so. yeah, I think so. I mean, I believe she lives in, I think, Antigua, and she, uh-huh. I believe she does interviews, at least in uh, my experience. Uh, that's the case. Yeah, but she's, you know, this film has... I think that the Dowds being involved in it helped it a lot, too, because, like, there are so many cool people in this movie, from Buster Poindexter to, you know, there's even, even sort of uh, Robbie Coltrane, who was a very cool actor who had been in the young ones and stuff like that. There's kind of a lot of like punk influences and Nancy Dowd comes kind of was somebody who knew the punk scene very well and wrote ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. So I think there was a very, a real hipness to the 
cast and crew on this film. You know what I mean? And it's mm-hmm. hard to yeah. put ourselves back in 1989 and think about what hip and what was hip and kind of underground and cool during that time. But it does seem like this film had that. And it's unfortunate because it was kind of lost on it because like you got all these cool kind of punkish like hip people in this movie that was about degenerate horse players so like who's going to be the audience for this movie you know like young cool people are not going to go see this movie that's and kind of people who were really into horse racing were probably not going to appreciate what was hip about it so in some ways it was a bit of a mismatch but i think for us looking at it 30 years on it's like the it's not a mismatch it's like a for for a guy like me it's the perfect intersection you know what i mean like it's yeah it's, it's such a good cultural you know, artifact for me because it just, it's sort of right in the middle of my own Venn diagram of all the things that I like. I think that it's the <laughs> right amount of like corny, the right amount of funny, the right amount of kind of cool. And like I've said a number of times, like it really rings true to the experience of the sort of lunch pail mm-hmm. horse player. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of actually all the things that you're, that you just described, right? Funny, corny, cool. All those things I think are actually you can find in this scene that we're discussing, right? Uh-huh. The uh-huh. whole pole scene is very funny. There's a little bit of corn with Coltrane's speech, but it's beautiful at the same time. And the, I mean, just the, the, the sound of the tickets at this point, when you hear right. all 48 pop up, there's something unquestionably cool as everybody stops and it's like, oh, now we're all paying attention to what's going on at the window here. Everybody who is just online is like, oh, this is the guy. You know, it kind of turns into that. The sound of the tickets is like it perks people's ears up because there's so many of them coming out. Yes. And, and the music swells. And yeah. And then they have they smoke a cigarette like that, like as if they just had sex. You know, it's <laughs> yes, it's just beautiful, you know. And then, yeah, and Robbie's whole speech, you know, which I think is like only corny and how sincere it is. You know, like it's only it's very sincere when he's telling him like, oh, I. You know, I've seen all kinds. I travel, I play the circuit, and like, you're the best I've ever seen. Yeah. Robbie, he kind of chokes up as he's saying it. Oh, yes, he, chokes he does. Up. Like he, it looks like he might cry. Yes. And it makes you, it makes me feel like I might cry when he does it. You know, it's just, it's such a stupid thing to feel all that, that emotional about. Yet at the same time, the movie does a great job of making me feel emotional about it. As a horse player, I just feel like that is a moment that I think everybody dreams about having, you know, and here's what I think is key about this scene. It's important to note. Okay. He hasn't won anything yet. That's right? true. That's what they, true. What they are celebrating in that moment is not a win. In fact, he just took all of his winnings and bet it. So all they're celebrating is the bet, the risk that he took. And that I think is such a pure mm-hmm. thing in any, in any, you know, if a square made a movie about horse racing, they would have made the celebration be around the win. But as you rightly pointed out, when he wins, it becomes very complicated for everybody. Some people are haters about this. No, in in a real true gambling movie, what is being celebrated is the bet. It risk. is. That's that's where they're celebrating the the balls that this guy has, and that's why Robbie's character says, "You're the best I've ever seen." I'll tell my grandkids about you. He's not going to tell his grandkids about the guy that won a lot of money. The only story he has to tell his grandkids right there in that moment is the story of the man who bet all the money that he won, who let it ride. Yes, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely. That's true. why this scene is so important, <laughs> and why this scene makes this movie a good gambling movie instead of a square gambling movie. <laughs> all right, all right. So just. Out of curiosity, do you have an example of a square gambling movie? <laughs> I mean, all of them, <laughs> right? Look, most gambling movies, yeah, the re- most gambling movies either are about a person who cheats, yeah, 
That's true. Or a person who is hopelessly addicted to gambling and is like sick and like bet and loses all the, you know, wins up, wins a bunch of money only to lose it all. Right. Like think about Mississippi Grind, which I think is a good gambling movie. Okay. I really do. Yes. But it's definitely square because in that movie, it plays that same note, which is, and it's really just a sort of, in some ways, if you're going to talk about Mississippi Grind, you have to talk about California Split, because I think the Mississippi Grind is a little bit of a... Oh, there's no homage. doubt. The, the DNA is you right know, there. Sure. Right. They yeah. bit a lot from that movie, but you know, I'll give them credit and say, okay, it was an homage. It's like, so, but in both of those movies, a, a degenerate gambler who can't help himself runs up a big number, kind of like Trotter. Mm-hmm only to lose it all in the end. The hero has to lose all the money in the end and go broke, right? And then something else, there'll be some other redemptive thing at the end, right? What's great about this movie is that they just let the fantasy continue. He just wins it all, you know? He doesn't lose it all at the that, end. That is the crazy thing about this movie, right? Is that he wins in the end. Because I can completely remember thinking that he, there's no way he's winning this in the end. Like, we must be learning the lesson here. He's right, but why? Why does every gambling movie have to teach that lesson? Right, you know why do they? Why do they all have to wag their fingers at gamblers and say, you know, okay, but in the end we have to take it all away from you? Why? In the movie where the like hapless doofus falls madly in love with the beautiful woman, they don't make him not. You know, he always gets the girl at the end of the movie, even though that's an absurd fantasy. That's what you know. But in a gambling movie, the gambler never gets the girl so to speak they never get to have their win they always have to lose it all at the end as some sort of finger wagging moralizing lesson to us and i think that sucks this movie at least they gave us the fantasy all the way to the end don't you know david that gambling is just wrong it's morally wrong (laughs) didn't you ever learn that lesson (laughs) okay so let me ask you this question then. And this is something that kind of weighs on my mind a little bit. And it's mainly, I think, because I'm just prone to guilt as a human being. Just as it's sort of in my DNA. Does this movie then, does it send wrong messages, David? Or, or I, I love that I'm talking to you, by the way, because you're making me feel much better about this than anybody else has. Because I feel sometimes a little guilt like, oh, no, this is a well, why do I enjoy this movie so much? even though it's seemingly encouraging you to go out and be a reckless gambler. Which, by the way, I am not a reckless gambler. I am not even barely a gambler at all. But nonetheless, I feel that is, that's maybe the, the message that's coming out of the movie, and so therefore I should be uh, finger-wagging, as you say. <laughs> no. Okay. Of course not. All right. Let, 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 me, let me put it to you this way. Please. All right. Say Trotter lost. Mm-hmm. Okay, the bet at the end. How much yeah. money did he really lose? Uh, he lo- he loses fifty dollars. That's it. Yeah. He lost fifty dollars. So what is the harm in this day that he spends at the racetrack? Right. If he and he, I think, accepts that as the reality that that all this money that he has throughout as the movie goes on, it's not his money till he leaves the track with it. Right. So he's just going to keep letting it ride. If he goes broke on any given race and has to go back to the bar. And yes. like whatever, share his sorrows with the all the folks at the bar. He lost fifty bucks. He didn't mortgage his house. He didn't do anything irresponsible here. The most irresponsible <laughs> thing he did was, you know, was lie to his wife, or rather, you know, break his promise to his wife. Well, but that's all he did. He bet fifty dollars. So who cares? Let him win it all. <laughs> the lesson that we learned here is is not a bad one. So the, this idea, this whole concept of. You've got twenty four hundred bucks. You got to take that home with you. That's twenty four hundred dollars. That's not twenty four hundred dollars he took out of his bank account. It's twenty four hundred dollars that he, you know, sort of lucked into at the racetrack. So he lets it ride. 
And at the end of the day, he's going to go home and he's not going to be any worse than he was the day before. And I think that's the key here. Now, if this guy, if this was a movie about a guy who mortgaged his house, okay. you know, yes. put everything into Hawk so that he could come out here and gamble the racetrack, then yes, we'd be sending a pretty bad message <laughs> to people. Okay. But that's not what the story is here. And All I right. think there's something to celebrate about a guy who just keeps letting it ride because it's, you know, it's a fun tale about courage and bravery. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I, I think there's, you know, there's a whole other way of looking at this character and how he takes a chance. He keeps taking a risk. Yes. And this honestly is the story of American capitalism. I mean, there is no <laughs> successful story in American capitalism about any entrepreneur or anybody who ever made it went from rags to riches without taking a risk. That's right. Damn them. it. They all had to take a risk at some point. They had to take something that was theirs and put it at risk in order to turn it into something else. And we celebrate those stories of rags to riches and taking mm -hmm. those risks for people that become titans of industry or whatever. We can't celebrate Trotter, who gets to buy his wife a new living room set, you know? I mean, that's right. <laughs> for, having, for having the guts to take a risk. So, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think there's any bad message happening in this film at all. Okay, good. Wow. All right. Uh, this is, you've probably done the best job of this, by the way. So congratulations. <laughs> I, I, I feel somewhat guilt-free, at least for the moment. We'll see. It, something I else. I some will... practice in giving this speech. That's oh, funny. is that right? It's, it's very effective. It's very effective. So the horse that he bets on is Fleet Dreams, and mm -hmm. all of the horse names seem to have a symbolic meaning to them, right? So, so Charity seems like it's the gift to him. Faith Healer is sort of like what's sort of making him start to believe in what's going on. Fleet Dreams, now he's ready to go for it, and Hot to Trot is, well, that's pretty obvious. So is that how you sort of looked at these as well, or, or am I just making stuff up? About the different names? Yeah. What do you think of Fleet Dreams, well, that name? What does that name mean to you when you, when you saw it? In the book, Cronley says it's a lousy name. In fact, he has this joke in the book where he says that the parents of Fleet Dreams were wet fleet and big dreams, so <laughs> it could have been worse. <laughs> you know, the joke being he could have been named Wet Dreams, but he got, to, he got Fleet Dreams instead. Yeah, I don't know. I think that the names, you know, who knows? All the names definitely come from the book. So, you know, Cronley was a... Uh, a good writer, I, I imagine he probably did imbue each of these names with some sort of meaning. One of the things that a lot of horse players do, whether they'll admit it or not, and a lot of good horse players will not admit this, okay, is that the name is meaningful to the, you know, to people when they're making a bet. You know, like if you make, I don't know that there, good gamblers don't bet based on the name, but I will tell you that there have been plenty of bets I've made where I might have had good reasons to make the bet. But if there was some meaning behind the name, it made me feel a little bit more confident. Just like, horse. like maybe there's a little bit of destiny there, a little bit of fate yes, is there. Yes. Like if I, if at the end of the day, when I'm done handicapping the race and the horse I like, objectively like, also happens to have the name of one of my children in it. Oh my God. I'm going to feel a little bit more confident, maybe a lot more confident about that particular horse's chances. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I yeah, no, that, that feels like it's a sign. So... When that has happened, when that has surfaced for you, how has that worked out? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know, pretty good. Okay. But, you know, I, again, I'll tell you this. I don't typically just, I don't ever just pick a bet on a horse because of its name, right? But mm -hmm. my mother only picks horses based on their names, right? She will bet any, if there's a horse running that has the name of anybody in my extended family, 
Okay. It's she's betting it. I don't care if it's a third cousin twice removed, you know, <laughs> or whatever. She, if it's got the, if that name is in there somewhere, she she bets it. And she tends to do pretty good at the track. Used to drive my dad crazy to no end that he and her would sit next to each other at the racetrack and he would go to the paddock and size up the horse and watch the post parade and read all the past performances and go around and talk to every tout at the track he knew. And all my mom is doing is sitting there and oh uh, yeah oh my god and and, and and she'd she'd come home with a lot more money than him every day it used to drive him nuts but it worked could, for her <laughs> i could totally understand that when you go to the track right if as, as as you have how are you scouting these horses how are you making your bets are you doing exactly like what you, what you just said your dad would do yeah i think i like the handicap races you know i feel yeah. like i've gotten better at it over the years and that I can sort of shorthand it these days. I used to spend a lot more time than I do today. You know, like I, I, I think that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, even I would maybe sit up at night the night before I'd go to the track with the racing form and I would handicap every race ahead of time, you know, so I could be ready. Now I feel like I'm a lot more casual about it, but I, I think I'm better at it than I used to be, which allows me to be more casual about it, you know? So I, you know, I, I do a little bit of handicapping, but here's something I feel like I've come to, to believe about the racetrack okay and that's that handicapping is maybe just 50 percent of the battle right that, that that figuring out how to bet the horses is really key you know I, fe- I feel like a lot of horse players spend a lot of time figuring out what horses they like and then they make so many stupid bets that they can't figure out how to cash right that they bet all kinds of exotic bets or you know or doubles or whatever wager they're making whether it's like a multi-race wager or a, an exotic bet in one race they screw it up somehow so that at the end of the race they'll say well i had this horse and this horse but not in this order or i had this one but not this." you know like they always had some piece of it but they weren't able to cash so i think figuring out how to bet so that you can cash and come out ahead you know on that end of things is more important maybe even than handicapping but i you know at this point i just make win i'm like trotter i've gotten to where i'll just bank win bets i feel like it's a lot easier to pick a horse to win a race than it is to pick a horse to come in second or third what about you know wheeling things like that you know, if it, it all depends on what the payouts are. Like, if I if I pick a horse that I think I like a lot and I like it to win, then I'm just going to weigh my options. Is it would I rather wheel the horse on top and the exacted? Are the exacted payouts going to be better than if I just bet that much money on that horse to win? Or if I mm-hmm. put the horse, sometimes I'll wheel it in a double or in a pick th- single it in a pick three if I really like it a lot. But I t- I tend to not bet so many exactas and trifectas and superfectas anymore just because i feel like everything that happens behind the winner is a little bit of a is more of a gamble than just picking a horse that you think is going to win not to mention the fact that the odds that you see on the tote board are the win odds so having a better sense of a horse's value to win it's easier to get a sense of their value to win than it is to get you know i mean it's not i'm not saying you can't understand their value to place and show sure or in all these or in all these exotics but it's harder to sort of calculate all that then it is just look at the tote board and understand this horse is eight to one so i'll bet it and i know i'm getting eight to one so trotter is only betting horses to win he's not doing anything else right in the book in this particular scene you know i reread this scene in the book in anticipation of doing this interview and one of the things i thought was kind of interesting was that in the book before he goes to bet fleet dreams he tells himself just go bet it to show you know, bet it to show and <laughs> relax and enjoy the race and, and, and don't sweat it. And then when he gets to the window, he says, 
I want the you know the three to win. He just he can't do it. <laughs> he can't bet it to show. Oh my god, <laughs> I have not read that in, in forever. It's probably been close to twenty years since I've read that book. <laughs> I, I need to do that again. Also, I should just mention at at the end of the scene, one of the things that's a, a little on the corny side, but wonderful, right? Is that Reardon, the security guard, who's been sort of chasing him around a little bit throughout the movie is has been called in the ticket seller calls him in to escort him to a seat and when he does the way he shows up and he just sort of says hi like it's this sort Uh of like sweet like yeah i'm here now it's gonna be okay i don't know there's there's something about that sort of interaction and here's where that that music starts really swelling up and the crowd parts the old lady hugs him but (laughs) <laughs> There's something about that inclusion of Reardon now as sort of a, a member of the group, entourage, yeah. whatever, whatever, what have you, that, that kind of gives it a little corniness, but almost like gravitas at the same time. <laughs> totally. It almost feels like they're on a date or something when he's the way they say hi, which I like. But yes, the, uh, yes. But you're right. It's it's now he's on. He's changed teams. He's on the team now. He's not. But if you remember though, when the security guard arrests him or whatever the first time right he's on the team then too because trotter was gonna bet the wrong horse oh and so <laughs> it's only he's, he's actually still he's actually still a you know a uh a, a friendly force here in trotter's uh in trotter's you know <laughs> lucky true. day that's true that's true whether he, trotter realizes it or not he's on the on the team yeah thank thank god he did not get to bet lord byron that's absolutely true because that would have been well, that would have been the end of the movie, I guess, right? We're all going home. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know, I, the more I think about it as far as the end of that movie and, and how that ends, if he loses that bet, I don't know that I'm sitting here talking about this movie 30 years later because all of a sudden it's just such a downer, right? I don't think I would w- want to revisit as as much as I do, or I would and I would just kind of, all right, let me sit through this. Of course, of course. Bummer of but an also ending. that that moment yeah. where he realizes that if he had been able to make the bet that he would have lost. Yes. That is a key moment for him too because prior to that the he's only sort of acted rationally prior to that, right? He bet a sure thing. Yes. With the first bet. Right. Like a fixed race. The second race was also, you know, a sure thing essentially because the same guys that touted him the first one touted him the second one. Yep. So again, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, he doesn't see himself taking any risk there. And then it's the third rate bet that he's going to make where he can't make it and the horse loses and the sort of looking into the eye of the horse and everything. It's that moment that he realizes something supernatural is happening here. The fortune cookie was right. I can't yes. lose. And from that moment on, he acts with much more confidence of, I'm just going to keep letting it ride because I think I'm walking around lucky in a, right now. So I think that that scene also serves that purpose to sort of take Hit Trotter from sort of a rational actor to someone who is fully give, who's giving into his, the, the spell that's been cast on him. And in the scene that we're talking about, I think, is, like I said in the beginning of this conversation, this is the moment where he is where he really has surrendered to it yes. because he has 2,400 mm-hmm. bucks. He's like, you know what? Th- this is where the stakes get super high because not only is he betting $2,400, he's betting on the longest shot in the race. It's 40 to one. It's the longest shot in the race. So this is the, the sort of a apex of that arc that he's on of kind of 
saying, you know what, I'm, I, I think that I'm walking around lucky. I think that there's a spell cast on me. I'm going to just keep betting. This is where it all kind of comes to a head. And he knows he's going to win it. He has complete confidence that he's going to win it. He no longer is nervous. I mean, at the same time, he's also sort of snuck away, escaped the jockey room or the jockey club. Boy, how do I say that wrong? It's the name of the podcast. He's escaped the <laughs> jockey club and where his wife was is now waiting for yep. that money. I got to go yep. and take it out of my shoes. All right. And then they have that argument where I don't know how he doesn't get kicked out of the jockey club right there. And then they start <laughs> screaming at each other. Right. But he's got now he's got to go back, not with the cash, but with a big fat stack of $50 win tickets. And, right. you know, that's something else that he's putting on the line. Like, he's confident enough to know what a problem it's going to be when he gets. I know that my wife is going to flip out at the jockey club of all right. places, but it's worth it because it's well, going to happen. He knows he's going to win. He knows he he's going to win. win. Yeah. If he, if he had any doubt at all that he's going to win, he would hide this from her somehow. Right. But he doesn't hide it from her because he's just completely confident at that point. He accepts the he accepts the game here that, that he is, you know, that this is in, in that moment. He kind of gets that something magical is happening here. The audience gets it. You know, it's just so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I even think that the scene with the photo finish, the way that everyone is sweating but him. I think that's such a nice little touch, you know. Oh, yes. Yes. It's the opposite of. The first photo finish in, in the right. film where he right. is he is in anguish and nobody else seems to care. Everybody else right. is, is fine. This is a, a rare moment where actually Looney is being very nice to him. Have some nice beer because he's not winning. Like the, the rest of the time, Looney is very negative regarding his betting. Right. For, mm-hmm. From just from the very beginning. But in this moment where Trotter is anguished over the photo finish, he's completely nice to him. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, you're in pain, just like we are all the time. So, yeah, that is a, a nice flip on that scene. I hadn't even thought about that until yeah, I'm sorry, just now. Yeah. Well, because I think that this, there is sort of, yeah, there's, the, there's everything that leads to this moment. Yes. And then everything that comes after this. That's kind of how I see the film. I really do think that, like, once he walks away from this window with, the, with Robbie Coltrane, yeah. there's never another doubt in his mind from this moment on. This is true. He knows it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And that's when we see that this character has changed. And even the way you, you, the way you described it as being the opposite of the first photo finish, it's because the character, that transformation is complete at the end, right? So I think mm-hmm. this is the moment where everything, everything from this moment on, Trotter is fully aware of the fact that he can't lose. And people around him start to understand that too. Even his wife st- kind of s- sort of surrenders to it too once she gets what's happened. Well, it's, it's almost like it's the topper, right? As soon as she comes, like she returns but just before he wins. So she's there as like, look, I don't know what's happened. I am sure that you have lost and I'm okay with it. I will just be with you because I'm that <laughs> attached to you. And so it's almost as though this is the last thing, the last piece of the puzzle before his perfect day can be complete. Right. I mean, in some ways, she's the one who deserves this. He doesn't oh deserve my God. it at all. Absolutely. It, her, Absolutely. Imp- her presence in this movie is so important because we, in some ways, we end up rooting for Trotter because we think she deserves this, you know, that she deserves him getting this win. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if you think about Terry Gar, 
in just about every scene she's I think in every scene she's in, she is very hmm, how can I put this? Adversarial almost, right? Mm-hmm. But we feel for her. Like I feel for her every scene. Every every time she shows up, I'm completely understanding her perspective. I'm completely empathizing with her. I, I'm never looking at her like, oh my god, this this shill woman. Why are you yelling all the time? It's completely understood, right? And that Trotter is, you know, yeah, whatever. He's a sucker and a bum. Yes, and he, you know, and he's irresponsible. Like, yeah, I think the movie does a good job of like not trying to make her look like she's that she's somehow in the wrong or messing up Trotter's whole... I mean, you know, I think the movie... Part of the, what people have to understand about this movie, and I, th- I hope the movie does a good job of conveying this, is that what's happening here is magic, and it's a fantasy. Absolutely. Right? And, 100%. And that it's not that Trotter deserves this to happen to him. I do think that we think we want... You know, his wife deserves it, and we want it to happen for her. But I also think that as horse players, this fantasy is, is, is important because we've all had this fantasy, too, Right. Oh, yeah. It's a romantic comedy in that way, in that that's the sort of premise of every rom-com is that the unlikely couple will get together, right? And they will fall <laughs> in love in the end, despite the fact that there's no reason why they should. They always do. Like, love yeah. her to conquers all. And that's what this is. It's not about Trotter and, and his wife falling in love. It's about Trotter getting the money at the end and winning his bet. That's the sort of, that's the, the uh, love story here is uh, the love story that's happening in this window with Trotter and the ticker, ticket taker in this scene. That's the love story of this romantic comedy. This is the moment where the guy gets the girl, right? They're smoking cigarettes like they just had sex because in a way that is what's <laughs> happening here. That is what's been consummated, Yeah. right? Oh, yeah. The, make, the act of making this bet was <laughs> an act of, like, you know, passion. And people all see that and they applaud because they're all like, yeah, man, I wish that I could do that. Like, that's the romantic comedy kind of guy gets the girl moment right here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Jockey Club. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Delgado. Thank you to my guests, David Hill. David's podcast, Gamblers, is currently in its second season and is highly recommended. There is a link to it and his Let It Ride blog post in the show description. Check them both out. Our theme music is from Epidemic Sound. Our cover art is by Sean Labrie. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, then you can help the show out by buying me a coffee. Yes, it's really a thing. Someone actually did it recently. I should thank that person. You are probably listening, and you know who you are. And you should know, I appreciated the coffee. There is a link in the show notes on how to do it if you want to buy me a coffee as well. If you are saving up all of your pennies to bet on the four horse and why shouldn't you? Hey, I understand. Everyone who listens to this show understands. You can still support the show by leaving a free five-star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you may be listening to this. Check your app there may be a place to leave a review. If nothing else, it just warms the heart a little bit. You can contact me through email. It's dan at moviemaker.com. I'm on Twitter at underscore dan underscore Delgado. And yes, I am on the Repod app, which is a great way to not only listen to podcasts, but to interact with podcast hosts like me. Find it in your app store. Come on by and say hello. 
This has been Dan Delgado for the Jockey Club. And remember, sometimes you could be walking around lucky and not even know it. I've ever seen. I'll tell my grandchildren about you. Thanks.